welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. This is our second episode on the topic of ethics, part of our overview of what ministers learn as they prepare to serve the church. Today I want to begin with a quote from Dr. Terry Anderson, Emeritus Professor at the Vancouver School of Theology. The moral life has to do with the way human beings relate to one another. It also has to do with the way we relate to the sacred and the way we relate to other creatures and things. It spells out what a community assumes it means to be human and to be a member of the community. It involves both the kind of person one should or should not be and the actions in which one should or should not engage. Dr. Anderson is the author of an excellent volume called Walking the Way, uh, an Introduction to Christian Ethics. In this episode, we'll begin to look at some of Anderson's work and draw some connections to last week's overview. Recall we looked at four principles gleaned from a trip to the supermarket. Uh, to review, do no harm, pursue the common good, treat others as you wish to be treated, and develop a moral character. Thinking about that opening quote from Anderson, the moral life involves the way we relate to others and the type of person we are. This simple definition also defines the twin aspects of the moral life we're examining, uh, moral conduct and moral character. In our first session, session one, we looked at three aspects of moral conduct and we touched on moral character. We looked at one example of the changing moral landscape, where what was once regarded as always wrong is now regarded as sometimes wrong or even seldom wrong. So today we're going to begin with a biblical basis for the moral life and try to bring together the four principles. And we're going to begin with Mark chapter 12. It reads, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Without naming them as such, we were looking at what ethicists call obligations, the basic ground rules of action that allow us to develop and maintain healthy relationships. Obligations are defined by principles, the primary one being the great commandment. And the commandment is twofold. God's love inspires us to live a moral life, and the command to love our neighbor becomes a guide for many of life's situations. In this episode, we begin with a more in-depth examination of neighborly love, beginning with the concept of justice. Walter Brueggemann famously said, Justice is to sort out what belongs to whom and return it to them. The principle to love your neighbor includes the need to seek justice. For Terry Anderson, justice is the only one important criteria 
for determining a good society and is the prime standard for assessing political and economic life. So determining what is a just course of action is a complex and multifaceted question. There are various aspects of justice which at times may exist in tension with the others. So we'll look at a few, beginning with general justice, which considers the relationship between the individual and the state. Often called citizenship justice, this area bears on questions like obedience to laws, jury duty, conscription, and so on. Corrective justice flows from the principle, let the punishment fit the crime. The severity of the penalty should be proportional to the severity of the offense. The Old Testament notion, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is an early version of this idea, to prevent revenge killing for smaller infractions, for example. When Jesus spoke against an eye for an eye, he wasn't rejecting the overall goal. He was simply saying that his followers should follow an even more expansive ethic, like going the extra mile and loving our enemies. Compensatory justice refers to the extent to which people are fairly compensated for their injuries by those who have injured them. Just compensation is proportional to the loss inflicted on the person. Personal injury lawyers uh, likely come to mind here first, since we know that advertisements work. Another example of compensatory justice would be pay equity, compensating women who were denied equal pay for work of equal value. Compensation for victims of indigenous residential schools would be a third example. Distributive justice refers to the extent to which society's institutions ensure that benefits and burdens are distributed among society's members in ways that are fair and just. This includes a progressive taxation system, a shared burden, and universal health care, which would be a shared benefit. There's a viral video uh, coursing its way around the internet of an interaction between an Oklahoma woman with a broken taillight and the police officer who just pulled her over. Spoiler alert, the interaction ends badly. She's tased and arrested. But it begins with a violation of general justice when she refuses to sign for an $80 ticket she has just received. She doesn't think she deserves it and expects the officer to let her off with a warning. He does not. Her reaction, sadly, is to swear at the officer and drive off. He chases her and attempts to arrest her with limited success and uses his taser when she resists arrest. Now, we're in the territory of corrective justice, where we can debate whether any aspect of this interaction fits the crime. Did he need to chase her? Did he need to tase her? So many questions. Based on the interaction and the context, the United States, it's safe to assume that she will sue the police. Should she be compensated? If yes, then how much? Clearly, this is compensatory justice, where someone will need to decide what kind of payment, if any, she should receive.
There's even an element of distributive justice here with the question of costs associated with being arrested. In Oklahoma, the average cost of fines and fees is $1,300 per case, with an increasing trend to shift the cost of operating the court system to the people who are in it. At the end of the interaction, the officer is obligated to call an ambulance. She's just been tased. The average cost of an ambulance in the state of Oklahoma is $800 with insurance and $1,300 without. In other words, uh, whether you are rich or poor, the experience will cost the same. This becomes a matter of distributive justice when the cost of accessing the court system and the healthcare system is too expensive for some. If you want to watch the video, uh, you can Google Oklahoma woman tased by cop and it will surely come up. It seems she did manage to make a deal, uh, reducing the felony charges to misdemeanors. Uh, no word on what happened to the officer. We turn now to another aspect of moral conduct called values or goods, which are the consequences that our actions seek to bring forth. Goods, we'll use the traditional name, are objects or end states thought to be worthy of human pursuit. Health, harmony, and happiness are all goods worth pursuing. This emphasis begins in Scripture with the belief that humans were created in the image of God. We honor the Creator when we seek the same goods God seeks for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian, went further, saying that God is the source of all goodness and the goal of all goodness. He said that all forms of goodness are always a derived form of goodness dependent on the prior goodness of God. As we covered in our history course, goods became a central focus of mainline Protestant denominations at the beginning of the last century. The social gospel movement, with its emphasis on the creation of social programs for the betterment of society, promoted the goods of justice, equality, and democracy. Their central paradigm was creating the kingdom of God. Goods held in common are called the common good. The common good defines the shared values or goods of a given association of people. Any grouping with a common life may define for itself the common good. This would include churches, corporations, nations, and associations such as the United Nations. First articulated in ancient and medieval societies, the idea of the common good became widely disputed with the rise of classical liberalism and its emphasis on the autonomy of the individual. If society is made up of autonomous individuals, it was argued, it is meaningless to speak about common values that might impinge somehow on the liberty of an individual. A renewed articulation of common good then emerged called a communitarian vision, based on the assumption that the human person is essentially a social being. A person's identity, survival, and fulfillment 
were dependent upon social relations. The common good will try to define the type of societal interaction that can be understood as good in and of itself. On an international level, the common good has become a central idea. Uh, These words are from the UN Charter. To practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors, and to unite our strength to maintain international peace and security, and to ensure, by the acceptance of principles and the institution of methods, that armed force shall not be used, save in the common interest, and to employ international machinery for the promotion of the economic and social advancement of all peoples. This, of course, echoes the medieval idea of the common good, which sought the same goals within and between Christian societies. And one of the foundational concepts of the common good in that era, to which we will now turn, is the just war theory. Just war theory begins with the assumption that nations cannot be treated in the same manner as individuals in society. We give coercive power to the state to protect us from individuals intent on causing harm. This is why police are able to carry weapons. A civil society will protect the peaceful population from those seeking to do harm and permits the use of force to accomplish that goal. Between nations, there is no coercive power to protect some from harm. For this reason, the theory holds, it is justified to wage war under certain conditions. The justification is determined by individual governments and hopefully their people and is open to judgment by other nations. The great philosopher, St. Thomas Aquinas, defined the meaning of just war and his definition continues to be the basis for such a determination. Later thinkers have made some important qualifications to his thinking, which I'll share as well. Aquinas held that three conditions must be met for a war to be justified. The war must be declared by a legitimate authority, such as a government, with the support of the people. The war must be fought for a good reason. It must be waged by moderate means, that is, the war must not be waged in a way more savage than is needed to ensure victory. Later thinkers have suggested some key revisions uh, to the theory. Uh, These include the following. A war cannot be justified if a dispute can be solved by diplomatic means. Even if the first three conditions are met, it is still not justified if there are alternatives to war. A war cannot be justified if there is no hope for success. A war cannot be justified if it is pursued with the wrong intention, such as hatred or revenge. And the means of conducting the war must be moral. This would include the protection of non-combatants and avoiding other tactics that are considered war crimes. One of the primary objections to a just war theory is Jesus' command to turn the other cheek. Some have interpreted this to mean that Christians should be pacifists, refusing to participate in war. 
Yet, if we understand the words turn the other cheek to prohibit seeking revenge, it actually fits with the just war theory. Pacifists argue that war can never be justified and that the entire concept of a just war is morally flawed and that there is never a good reason to resort to violence. One difficulty with this belief is that it removes the right to self-defense. Without the right to self-defense, both as individuals and as nations, aggressors may, and some argue will always, use this stance to their advantage. As a concluding question, I might ask, uh, which wars, if any, can be considered just? I I can think of one or two, but I'll, I'll let you ponder. Next week, we will continue our moral quest uh, with no guarantee I'll find another viral video. This is radio, after all. So, uh, have a good week, and thank you for joining me.